Let's pray. Father, we are very grateful for time together again. As we have been worshiping you throughout the week in all kinds of ways. Father, we now come together as a body to worship you corporately. There are voices that have been speaking and singing your praise throughout this week. Now come together to be one voice, one mind, one heart. And we know that is pleasing in your sight. I was reminded this morning of Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good. Father, we want our time this morning to be worship. You have heard our song that has come from our hearts. Father, now as we dive into your word, let that be another expression of our worship. Move me to the side. Father, if I come up here with my best thoughts and my best intentions, it will fail. It'll be empty. I am very well aware of that. But Father, if we come here this morning and you speak from your word to your people, there's something to that. So I pray that's what would happen. I pray that's what would take. We also lift up uh, another church. We lift up Shady Grove Baptist Church to you this morning in Greenville. We pray for James Rawson and his wife. Deanne and their kids, thank you for bringing them there a few years ago. Thank you for the journey they've had with that church so far, how they have dove in and fully become a part of things. I pray this morning as they meet that you would be the focus, that you would be the center. I pray for James as he brings the word, that he would step out of the way, that he would decrease as you increase, that you would be made much of in their time together. I pray for James as he leads his family. that his worship would be the highest priority. That he would lead his wife, that he would lead his kids in a way that honors you. That you would protect them, that you would watch over them from the attacks of the enemy. We very much thank you for time together. Pray that you would be magnified in this time. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, if you remember last week, we were in 2 Corinthians as well, chapter 4. We were in verse 7. Verse 7 really set the tone for who we are and for what we hold. Very, very quick overview. The, the what we hold was the treasure. And the treasure we talked about was the gospel. And going back into to verse 6, it's the... Um, it's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's the gospel. It's the pearl of highest value. It's the treasure that was hidden in a field that you sell everything for so you can get it. That's the gospel. And the gospel was contained in a jar of clay. And remember some of the things we talked about regarding a jar of clay is that jars of clay are fragile as we are fragile. Jars of clay are expendable. And that sounded funny up front, but in the grand scheme of things, we're expendable. God 
wants to use us, chooses to use us, but in no way needs us because his will will be done. And the jars of clay are very simple and very unimpressive and how those things all relate to you and me. And then we brought that together to talk about how jars of clay hold a treasure, the significance of that. Talked about strength and weakness, talked about posing, talked about posturing, talked about how when God's strength comes in, it doesn't get rid of your weakness, it doesn't, doesn't replace our weakness, it actually comes in and is best seen in our weakness. And we talked about how our lives themselves, the fact that we're a jar of clay, puts the gospel on display. Because that's how it works. The medium is the message. The fact that, that God does that, he, he didn't put a treasure in something nice. He put it in a jar of clay because that's what God does. When he saves us, that's what he does. None of us were worthy. None of us were the golden chalice that could say we deserved any of it. But God said, no, the treasure is in no way related to the jar. It actually stands in contrast to it. And that's going to show my glory better than anything else. So that's the way I'm going to do it. Those are some of the things we went over last week. This week, it's going to look a little bit different. Last week, we sat with one thought for the entire time. We had one thought, treasure, jars of clay, and we kind of set it down. We walked around it. We asked questions of it. And it was kind of calm, kind of relaxing. It was just one thought. Today, it's going to be more of a progression. We're going to follow a, a line of thinking. We're going to follow Paul's argument. So we're not going to stay in one spot necessarily. We're going to hit a few spots, and we're going to see how they all fit together. Okay? You ready for that? I hope so. All right. Text. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what's been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it's all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This week, the text is going to take us a little more into the idea of suffering. Last week, we talked, we delved into a little bit the idea of weakness. Now we're going to be more specific in weakness and suffering. And one of the connections with last week, we wanted to be reminded of what happens to jars of clay under pressure. It's very simple. They break. Jars of clay break when they're under pressure. That's what they do. It's their nature. It's their nature to fall apart, and it's our nature with our jar of clay frame, with our, earthen, with our earthen vessel to fall apart under pressure. The only thing that keeps them together is something outside of themselves. 
you can't hold yourself together. It's going to take an outside force to hold you together, both in life and in ministry to others. Remember last week, we're not just talking about these things with no context. The context for chapter four is ministry, not just ministry church leadership or ministry this is what professionals do, ministry that this is what every single person under the new covenant is called to do. They're called to minister to others. They're called to serve. Go back to Ephesians 4. All these things are done to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so as you minister, there's going to be suffering. And going back to last week, a jar of clay is going to crack under suffering unless something else influences, unless something else holds it together. All right, verse 8. We're going to break this apart in little chunks discuss each one, kind of bring a couple of truths out of it, bring the argument that he's making, and then we'll move on and put each one together. So verses 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. There are four pairs that he has here. Afflicted, crushed, perplexed, driven to despair, persecuted, forsaken, struck down, destroyed. In each one, each pair, there is a word talking about suffering, and then it's paired with another word talking about suffering that's it's similar to that word, but it's a little more harsh. And then they get worse as you go down. And so we're going to hit each one of these and discuss them briefly. We're not going to get too bogged down in some of the specific words because there's a larger point instead of trying to hit each and every word. But we'll start with afflicted but not crushed. Afflicted, he's already brought up in 2 Corinthians. It was in chapter 1, verse 4, where he said, God comforts us in all of our affliction. So in this letter specifically, he's already introduced them to the idea of affliction. It's kind of a general term. He said we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. He uses crushed in chapter 6. And the idea behind crushed is press so hard that you're restricted. And so the idea is he said, yeah, we're pressed, but we're not pressed to the point that we can't move. There's still space, there's still movement there. So we're pressed, but we're not completely pressed. We're perplexed, which can be translated, we're despairing or we're at a loss, but we're not driven to despair. And so what he's saying is that we're despairing, but we're not totally despairing. We're at a loss, but we're not at an absolute loss. The third, he says, we're persecuted, but not forsaken. Persecuted is an interesting term because Paul used to be one of the persecutors. In Galatians 1, he says, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So Paul knows something about persecution from both sides of the fence. He's one of these guys that used to persecute. But it's also used of Paul um, suffering at the hands of others. In 1 Corinthians 4, he said, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. So Paul has been both persecutor and the persecuted. And he said, we are persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Forsaken has a really rich history in the Old Testament. In Joshua 5, God telling Joshua, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And then as Ben was talking about a few weeks ago in Psalm 22, you have the psalmist saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words echoed by Jesus on the cross, a reminder that the Son of God was forsaken 
so that you and I will never be forsaken. So it says we are persecuted, but we are never forsaken. And then the final one, he says, we're struck down, but we're not destroyed. The imagery of being struck down is the imagery of being struck with a sword. And so you're laid low by a weapon, but the death blow hasn't been dealt. And so you're struck down, but you're not destroyed. You're not perishing. We're not going to go any deeper into the specific words because there's a larger point. And the larger point is that even though God is with his people, even though God walks very closely with his people, he watches over his children, but they still experience suffering that is very real, very painful. That's what we're taking out of some of eight and nine. God very much watches over his children. He doesn't let them handle anything that he hasn't prepared them for. At the same time, as he walks through things with us, we will still experience suffering that is very, very real, that is very painful. There's no way to get around that. We'll dive deeper into it. The list that he talks, that he goes through here, it's a technical term for it. For those that like that, it's called a peristalsis list. It's he does the same thing in chapter 6, chapter 11. It's kind of a list of hardships. It's actually based on Stoic philosophy. Um, Stoics used to list out hardships, but the point of Stoic philosophers was they saw themselves as suffering wise men that they were able to triumph over their hardships by the strength of their mind. They were self-sufficient. And so they, they would list out things that they were going through but the point was to say, yeah, I'm going through all these things, but in the power of my own mind, in the strength of my own will, I'm going to rise above. I'm not going to be affected by things. You know, you hear people talk about a stoic. It means they're, they're unaffected by things. And so the stoics would say, I can list out all these things to show you I'm not affected. Paul used his list to actually state the opposite. Paul was dependent on the sustaining power of God. He didn't speak here of rising above hardships, what he tended to speak of was suffering God as you're going through the hardships. Very, very different way of looking at things. He didn't downplay his suffering. He didn't use trite terms. He didn't make it a matter of indifference. And so Paul didn't look at things and say, well, we're suffering, but, ah, come on. It's not real suffering. This brings me to Romans 8.28. Um, you don't have to turn there. Most of you can probably quote it. Romans 8.28 is something that's very near and dear to me, both because I've seen it used very, very well, but also in growing up, I've seen it used excruciatingly poorly. And the idea of Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. God is working all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. My best friend, a few years ago, he was walking through something with another friend of his. This guy, his wife, was in the hospital. She was having their baby, and there were some complications. There was a two-week stretch where she was in the hospital, and it was excruciating. It was horrible. The end result is she died, and the baby lived with a lot of problems. And so my friend was going through that. He was at the hospital every day with, with this guy. And they were crying together. They were praying together, um, everything together. And as they were walking through the hospital, one day they, they walked up to a pastor, a local pastor guy who kind of knew what was going on, kind of didn't. And so they poured their heart out. This is what's going on. 
And this guy looks at him and says, well, you know, son, all things work together for good. And he walked away. And my friend said, it is the closest I've ever come to punching a pastor in the face. Um, because that's not the point of the passage. Notice Romans 8, 28. It doesn't say all things are good. It says that God works all things for good. The fact that God works all things for good makes evil things no less evil. It makes painful things no less painful. It makes hard things no less hard. It means that in the midst of them, in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the doubt, in the midst of all of that, that there is something on the other side. That's the hope that Christians have. Not that we shut our eyes, repeat Romans 8:28, and hope that all the bad men go away. It's not a magic incantation that makes all bad go away. It's that in the middle of all the bad, in the middle of all the suffering, God is still there. He hasn't abandoned his children. And that we can have faith that on the other side of this, we'll see his will. Maybe it's even after death, but we'll see that he was working good out of the worst of the worst, out of the stuff that we couldn't possibly imagine any good would come from. He was still there and he was still at work. We're not detached in any way. Sometimes we get into our minds, the only way to be healthy is to be detached from life, to be detached from suffering. You even see, I've done this myself sometimes, where you know, you're on your way to work and you have a flat tire and five other horrible things happen. You get bad calls and you get to work and somebody says, how's your day? And something in your head goes, you know what? If I tell them I'm having a bad day, that means I'm a bad Christian. Because Christians don't have bad days. Christians have good days because God loves us. And so smiling means that I'm a good Christian. And so you say, well, you know, this, this, and this is happening, but still having a great day. No, you're not. <laughs> you're having a bad day. And that's okay. Christians can have bad days. Um, actually, a lot of Christians have really bad days. The point is, even in the bad days, you see something beyond it. But there's honesty there. Going back to the idea of a jar of clay, it's interesting. There's a quote I came on this week. A commentator said, viewed as a whole then, the hardships that Paul lists in the catalog in this little discussion here have, as it were, caused cracks in him as an earthen vessel. But the vessel itself remains intact. The vessel is held together by the power of divine adhesive, and the light that shines through these cracks is none other than the light of the life of Jesus. So the idea there is, we talked about last week, that by nature of you being a jar of clay, when people look at you from the outside, it's difficult for them to even believe there could be treasure inside. What this is saying is, it's by viewing you through your cracks that people are able to see the treasure shining through. And so it's by letting people see those cracks, it's by letting people understand that you're having a bad day, that people are able to see through and see the treasure shining, shining through, to see the light of the life of Christ shining through. They do it through seeing your faults and God working through them. They do it through seeing your weakness and seeing God work through that. That's how it works. And so 8 and 9, the, the truth will take away from it. The, the part of the argument that he's saying is suffering is very real. We don't discount it in any way. It's very real and it's very painful. 
and children of God go through it. We're especially going to go through it as we are actively serving and ministering to others. Okay. Verses 10 and 11. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Our question is, what kind of death is he talking about? The death that he's not talking about is when it talks about in lots of other places um, how we die with Christ. The death that we have in Christ where he redeems us, his blood covers us and cleanses us from our sin. You know, you hear in Galatians 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? That's actually not the death that he's talking about right here. It's not as we die with Christ and are raised again in salvation. The death he's talking about here actually has to do with suffering. Paul is using death as symbolic of suffering. He moves from the specific sufferings mentioned in verses 8 and 9 to the absolute categories of death and life. And in doing so, he ties his own suffering to the very center, the core, the apex of the Christian faith, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. Paul ties his suffering to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is mentioned four times in verses 10 and 11. He keeps tying it back to Jesus, back to Jesus. What he's not saying, he's not saying we in any way participate in the death of Jesus on behalf, on behalf of sinners. He's not tying it to the death of Christ in that way. But he is saying that the dying of Jesus that takes place in our bodies is the suffering mentioned in 8 and 9. That the resurrection that takes place in our bodies is the but nots, where it says we are afflicted in every way but not. And so as we are sustained through the suffering, that is a type of resurrection. And so Paul is tying his own sufferings and sustaining to the death and the resurrection of Christ. We talk often here about how marriage puts the gospel on display by viewing Christ and his church. Last week we talked about how you as a jar of clay in some way puts the gospel on display as a treasure in, in a jar of clay. Here he's saying that our suffering for the sake of Christ, in doing so we put the death and the resurrection of Jesus on display for others to see. The dying is in some sense stress, stress fractures in the jar of clay. The life that's in the jar of clay isn't broken. Both the death and the life are seen in the idea of a jar of clay. The fact that the death is there, we can see the cracks, we can see the holes, we can see the frailty, but the fact that it doesn't break, we see the life, we see resurrection. See how these are fitting together? We'll take step back, step, steps back here and there to look at the argument. So he's saying, first of all, suffering is very real, very present, very painful. And then the next step of the argument, he ties our suffering to the death and resurrection of Christ. So that's the line of thinking so far. It's not the only place he talks about death like this. 1 Corinthians 15, 
I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. He's talking about a daily death. In Philippians 3, not that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Matthew 16, we have Jesus saying, talking to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so over and over, we see the idea of suffering and death related to the death of Christ. In no way participating in the death of Christ on behalf of sinners, but being likened to Christ in that as we suffer, we put the cross on display. We suffer because we follow a suffering Savior. We are redeemed because we follow a Savior that was resurrected. This is how he's fitting everything together. One of the other things we take away from 10 and 11 is we need to develop a theology of suffering and death. In most of the circles I grew up in, those were not normal things to talk about as Christians. We like to talk about happy things. We like to talk about our happy place and cute fuzzy little bunnies and everything that goes into all of those things. And then when somebody would bring up anything having to do with suffering, anything having to do with bad days, everybody would look at him like, hey, thanks, downer. Um, we're all trying to be happy here. We're Christians. And so we need to develop a theology of suffering and death. Suffering and death are part of God's design to spread the gospel. They're part of the design. Take a step back from Greenville, where sometimes it may be difficult to see that, and look at the world. I won't go into a whole lot of statistics, but I can say that more people have been killed in the name of Christ in the last few years than in the entire rest of Christian history put together. God is using suffering and death to get the gospel out to the world, and he's not just doing it to the world. God wants to in some way use your suffering and eventually your death, both as you die every day and eventually your death, death, to spread the gospel to Greenville here and wherever he happens to bring you, even if that's to the other side of the world. God uses suffering and death to do that. We have to develop the theology that that's what God does with his people. You guys talked over and over in with incredible depth and richness in John 12, going back to the words of Christ, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the seed that falls to the ground and dies, it doesn't just die once in martyrdom. It dies over and over again as we die to ourselves, as we suffer in the name of Christ, that seed keeps dying and keeps dying until one day it dies as we know death and it's no longer on this earth. In looking at those who have bled and died in the name of Christ, I was reading a book called The Afflictions of Christ, it said they died in so many times and in so many ways before their life on this earth ended. There's a theology of suffering and death that that is actually the tool that God uses to bring the gospel to the nations. He doesn't use comfort. You don't see that in the history of the church. God doesn't use comfort and relaxing times to spread the gospel. He uses suffering and he uses death and we have to embrace that if we're really gonna be a part of what God is doing in Greenville and in the nations. 
We don't run away from suffering. We don't run to suffering either. Uh, we don't say, wow, I just really want to suffer today. That's weird. Um, and so we don't run away from it. We don't run to it. We simply realize that that's what God does to his people, with his people. So that's how we start to develop a theology of suffering and death. And so Paul is drawing that here. He's saying that my suffering and my death is like the suffering of Christ. And God sustaining me is like the resurrection of Christ. And those are the truths that we need seeping through in our lives. As we're going through things, we're not running away from them, but we're embracing, embracing them as this is putting the cross on display. I'm following the man of sorrows by suffering as he suffered and by not striking back as he didn't strike back and by not whining as he didn't whine. Okay. Verse 12. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Here's the twist. In verses 10 and 11, he kept saying, we're being given over to death and life is happening in us. We're constantly at death's door so that we can be receiving life in our mortal bodies. Here's where he turns it. He could say, so death is at work in us so that life will be at work in us. Now what he says here. What he says is, here is, so death is at work in us so that life will be at work in you. This is where he turns it off of ourselves and puts it on someone else. He says that his death is giving life to the Corinthians. Death is working in us through suffering, but life is working in you through God's grace being extended, which we're going to see in verse 15. Death keeps the same meaning here. He was talking about death in terms of suffering in verses 10 and 11. Life actually shifts in meaning here a little bit. In 10 and 11, he was talking about life in terms of sustaining, being sustained in the midst of suffering. Here, he's talking about life as the grace that God is extending to other people. So Paul is saying that by my death, by my suffering, God is extending grace to you. Turn to the book of Colossians. Chapter 1. This was actually a tricky passage for me the first time I ever remember looking at it years ago. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for you. Let's say it one more time just so we can be clear. Paul is not saying that he is in any way participating in Christ's atoning work for sinners. That's not what he means when he says, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for you. It wasn't that Christ's work was incomplete in any way and that Paul had to step in and save him. And we in no way try to step in and do what only Christ could do. Christ is the one that went through the suffering that died on the cross for our sins. Christ is the one that was raised again and is now seated. Finished work. All Christ. 
But Paul can in some ways say that in my suffering, I am filling up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And what he means by that, not that Christ's atoning work is incomplete, but what's lacking is the proclamation and the suffering that's going to go along with it. That's how we fill up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ, by going through our own afflictions as we share the gospel. And that goes exactly back to 2 Corinthians 4. We're putting the cross on display as we share gospel. That's how we fill up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Move to verse 13. Verses 13 through 15 actually explain verse 12 a little better. It explains how life is at work in the Corinthians as a result of Paul's being given over to death. 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what's been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that him who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it's all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul quotes Psalm 116. Don't need to go there. We're not going to dive too far into 116. He takes out a simple phrase, and he connects with the psalmist over the phrase, I believed, and so I spoke. He said, we have the same spirit of faith according to what's been written. We have the same spirit of faith according to the psalmist. Paul's saying, I understand what the psalmist meant when he said this. And what the psalmist said was, I believed, and so I spoke. God delivered the psalmist from affliction and death. If you would go back to the psalm, you'd see that the psalmist said, I went through this, I went through this. God delivered me out of this, he delivered me out of this, and I believed, I believed in God because he saved me, and so I spoke. The fact that I believed in him instantly caused me to talk about him. Paul's connecting with that. He says, I understand what he's saying. He said, the psalmist said, I believe, and so I spoke. He said, we also believe, and so we also speak. Paul is actually tying his suffering to the words that he was saying. He's tying his suffering to his proclamation of the gospel. God delivered the psalmist from affliction and death. God had delivered Paul from suffering and from death in lots and lots of different ways. Paul also is able to see the ultimate deliverance in the resurrection. There is a connection there. The connection is that both in Paul and the psalmist, both were righteous sinners they were righteous sufferers, um, actually, that in their suffering, they still wouldn't be quiet about the gospel. That's how Paul's saying, I understand what he's saying. I suffered and I believed, and so I spoke. We also suffer, we also believed, therefore we also speak. Paul couldn't stop sharing the truth of the gospel. He connects his sharing with suffering. He mentioned back in chapter two of Second Corinthians, he said, For we're not like so many like for we're not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. He said, We're not like peddlers of God's word, guys that are selling the stuff for a profit. We speak and we speak in Christ. And that's how we talk. In Acts 4, you have Peter and John answering the authorities, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
Paul's suffering is connected with his speaking. He can't stop speaking because of what he's seen in Christ, how he has seen God deliver him. Speaking is connected with believing, and here believing is connected with knowing. Um, you guys have heard Scott talk about um, going back to the passage of faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. Your, your belief is based on something, and here Paul actually bases it on two things. One of them is found in verse 14. One of them is found in verse 15. So the faith came from believing. The believing came from knowing. And Paul said, I know two things that came to mind that were making me speak. First is in verse 14, and it is a knowledge of the resurrection. He says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Paul speaks boldly because he knows that on the other side of affliction is resurrection. Death is constantly at work, but it does not have final authority. Remember Matthew 10, Jesus saying, don't fear him who can kill the body, but can't kill the soul. Remember him, rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul. We don't fear those around us. They can only do so much to us. We fear him who has the power of death and life altogether. Paul knows this. Paul is able to speak boldly because he knows that even if he is struck down, even if he is killed, even if he was beaten numerous times, which he was, that there is a resurrection on the other side of affliction. He said, we know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also. That's what I know. And because I know that, I believe that God is going to do it. So I'm going to keep talking. I'm going to keep talking about the gospel. I'm going to keep talking about what God has done, what Christ has done in me. So Paul knew about his resurrection. He even ties that to judgment. We won't go too, too deep into that, but he says that he's going to bring us all together with you into his presence. It ties a little bit into chapter 5 where it talks about we're all going to come together in the judgment seat of Christ after the resurrection. So it's all tied to the resurrection. There's a second thing he knows in verse 15. He knows that as grace extends to more and more people, that the grateful response is going to bring glory to God. Paul says, two things are driving me to keep, to keep talking, to keep speaking about the gospel. One of them is the fact that on the other side of suffering is going to be resurrection. The other is the fact that as I am speaking, as I am sharing gospel, it is extending grace to more people. It's extending grace to you, Corinthians. And as you respond to that grace with thanksgiving, with grateful hearts, God gets the glory. That's all that's tied in there. When Paul says, all of this is for you, he's talking about his speaking, he's talking about his suffering. The grace that's extending to more and more is the life that we talked about in verses 10 and 11. As some respond with grateful hearts, God is glorified. One of the best ways to, that I saw um, somebody phrase this is it was a guy that was in, Mar- in Romania for a lot of years and was beaten and suffered often for the gospel. He said, Christ died for propitiation. You guys know that term. You talked about it often here, wrath absorber. Christ died for propitiation. We suffer, we die for propagation. Christ died to save us from our sins. We suffer, we die, so that that message of Christ dying for our sins gets out. Because remember, suffering and death is how God chooses 
to get the gospel out to the world. Speaking is connected with suffering, and we speak boldly. And this ties in with many of the things Scott was saying from Psalm 146 a few weeks ago. We speak boldly, but we do not speak indiscriminately. There's a difference. We speak boldly. We, We don't hold back because we fear men. At the same time, we speak because we're walking in step with the Spirit. But speaking boldly is important. Romans 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Psalm 96, the psalmist says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the people. Declare it. Speak it. You have to speak it at some point. Everybody can go back to, and there's lots of good that can come from the quote. But so many people go back to Francis of Assisi, the quote, share the gospel at all times or preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. I line up with that. I also want to be very, very clear. As you are sharing the gospel with someone, at some point, words will always be necessary. That is because by nature of your actions, you nor I will never act in such a way that someone understands the complete and full gospel. They may see some good aspects of the gospel. They may see how God's people care for others, and they may see all those things, and that may give them a good context for understanding the gospel. But I'm not going to do anything in my actions that somebody's going to look at and say, you know what? I don't really know, know much, but by the way Derek treated that guy, I can tell that I'm a sinner and that Christ came on this earth and lived a perfect sinful life and died for our sins and was raised again to newness of life and that he's going to come back and judge the earth. They will not get that from your actions. And so, yeah, share the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. At some point, as you're sharing the gospel, words will always be necessary. You need to speak it. It needs to come out of your mouth. Most of us aren't used to that. Most people in the States, most Christians in the, sh- in the States simply have not shared their faith. They've never spoken gospel to someone else. We bring a lot of students overseas, and when we do, we sit them down their first or second day and say, you've got two minutes. Share the gospel. And we even put a a caveat on them sometimes because of different places we are. Share the gospel and don't use a lot of Christian words. Um, And so they'll start, and they're like, oh, well, Jesus is good. Um, I don't know what else to say simply because most of them in their lives haven't actually spoken gospel. They've heard gospel. They've heard lots of gospel talk around them, um, and they can say lots of churchy things. But if someone were to ask them, look, I need you to tell me the gospel. I'm hungry for it. They don't have a lot. So get used to speaking gospel. Know where to start for husbands and wives? Start with your spouse. We need to be speaking words of the gospel into each other's lives as believers. That's one of the things that we do as community. We speak, we preach gospel back over each other. We need those reminders often. And as you're doing it back and forth with with your wife, with your husband, with, with your friends, your brothers and sisters around you, you get used to hearing it coming out of your mouth. And that does something to you. That prepares you for being able to speak it out when you're not in the safety of your own home, when you're not in the safety of those who you 
are sure aren't going to laugh at you. You get used to hearing it and it comes out. You share the gospel at all times. You use words if necessary. Words are going to be necessary. It doesn't mean you shove it down their throat. Remember Psalm 146? You don't do it indiscriminately. You walk in the spirit. And there are going to be times where you, you think you want to come out and just beat them over the head with the gospel. And God says, no, 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 take it easy. Now actually isn't the time. You need to listen to me because I'm setting something up that's going to even give greater opportunity for them to hear gospel. And so we do share the gospel. We do use words. We don't do it indiscriminately. We do it in step with the Spirit in a way that honors God. And as we do it, we do it boldly. All of those things are true about speaking the gospel. Okay? Okay, moving right along. We'll take one step back real quick and go back through the argument. And so, so Paul's saying in verses 8 and 9, suffering is real, suffering is painful. And then in 10 and 11, he ties his and our suffering to the center of the gospel, to the death and resurrection of Christ. And so he starts using that death and life terminology. And in verse 12, we get a curveball where he says, so death is at work in us, but life is in you. And so Paul turns his suffering to say, this is actually being done for your sake. And then in 13 through 15, he says, I'm going through this suffering because I'm speaking the gospel. I'm speaking the gospel because I know that on the other side of death is resurrection. And that as I'm speaking the gospel, God's grace is going out. It's affecting you. And as you're returning thanks, God's getting the glory. And as we speak, as we minister in everything we do, we constantly go back to God gets the glory. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's easy to make our sharing about us. It's easy to make our proclamation of the gospel about us. Well, how'd they respond to me? What do they think about me? Did they think I did a good job? Do I think I did a good job? When it's all about God. It's his glory. It's his story. Putting all of that on display. It's not about us. 16. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In verses 16 through 18, Paul gives us the best lens through which to see suffering. The best lens through which to see death. In verse 16, he tells us why we don't ultimately despair. Why we don't ultimately, ultimately lose heart. He talks about our, out, our outer self and our inner self. The outer self is wasting away. This goes back to the idea of a jar of clay in verse 7. The idea of hardships and suffering in verses 8 and 9. The idea of dying, death in verses 10 through 12. So we've got our outer self. And then he contrasts that with our inner self. The inner self is being renewed. The inner self is the treasure. The gospel that's sustaining in verse 7. The life of Jesus in verses 10 and 11. Resurrection in verse 14. So he says our, something is happening to our outer selves and something is happening into our inner selves. And he actually puts an inverse relationship there. He says, as our outer selves, and even as our outer selves are wasting away, our inner selves are being renewed day by day. As one of them is going down, 
One of them is going up. The things that we can see, we'll get to in a moment, they're going down. And we're people that tend to live by the things that we see right in front of us. And so what we tend to see is the outer. Our outer self is wasting away because we're jars of clay. We see the death. We see the suffering. We see the soul, the, um, the toll that it takes on our bodies, on our minds. We see all of that. We see it wasting away, and it is wasting away. But even as it is wasting away, our inner self, inner person, is being renewed day by day. As one is going down, one is going up. Verse 17. The light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Paul in no way minimizes suffering. He puts it in perspective. He doesn't say, well, yeah, you were suffering, but it's not a big deal. He says, yeah, you were suffering and was painful and it is painful now let's put it in perspective to something larger he says two things about suffering here one it can't compare to the glory to come he calls the affliction light and momentary it's not light and momentary in itself it's only light and momentary as you compare it with something else the affliction is only light and momentary as you compare it to the eternal weight of glory that is beyond compare he uses a really cool word there to say beyond compare. It's actually the word surpassing, beyond surpassing. Um, he's saying, look, you don't even have a frame of reference for understanding how amazing this glory is. And so you can't even start comparing suffering to it. Suffering doesn't compare to the glory that's coming. That helps us start to put it in perspective. And the second thing he does that helps us put it into perspective, and this is something that's been wrecking me this week, is not only can suffering not compare to the glory, suffering was preparing us for the glory. This is how the thoughts of verse 16 fit together. One of those things was actually preparing us for the other thing to happen. The outer self wasting away was actually preparing us as the inner self was being renewed day by day. Your suffering never thwarted the purposes of God. God was not surprised. Your suffering and my suffering were actually the tools that God has used, that God is using right now, and that God is going to continue to use to prepare you for glory. It's not just a suffering that we need to, to run away from. It's not just a suffering that we bear through. It's a suffering that prepares us for glory. That helps us start to put our suffering in perspective. That it can't be compared to the glory that's coming and that it is actually preparing us for the glory that's coming. It's connected back with Hebrews 2, dominion. Christ is seated on his throne. Right now, at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. That's the suffering. We look around us and say, all right, if, if he's on his throne, then why is that happening? If he is Lord over my life, why am I suffering in this way? This is telling us why we're suffering in this way. He is using that to prepare us. We don't yet see him seated on his throne. We don't yet see how things play out. We don't yet see how he is taking all of this, and this is the proper use of Romans 8, 28, where he is taking all of this stuff, the worst of the worst, 
and still doing something amazing with it. It is so beyond us. If he tried to explain it to us right now, our heads would explode because we couldn't possibly comprehend it. But God is doing something. He is weaving together our suffering. He's weaving together the struggles, the doubt, all of that. He's weaving it together to do something that is beyond our grasp, beyond our imagination. He is using it to, in each of our lives, in our own way, with how he has wired us and designed us. He is using all of those things to prepare his people, to prepare his church for what life looks like on the other side of suffering, on the other side of death. That doesn't in any way downplay or minimize the suffering and the death, but it helps us see the design of it. It helps us put it in perspective. It doesn't allow us to close our eyes and say, no, no, everything's good, everything's good. Even when things are at their worst, it allows us to see beyond it to the God that sustains his people in the toughest of times, that sustains his people even through death. You have amazing words from Christ when he's talking to his guys one time. He says, look, they're going to beat you. You're going to suffer. Some of you, they're going to kill. But not a hair of your head will perish. What do you mean? Didn't you say they were going to kill us? He says, yeah, they're going to kill you, but not a hair of your head is going to perish. There's something beyond death where his people will not perish. That helps us keep everything in perspective. So where's our focus? And this is where we get into verse 18. Is our focus on what is seen or what is unseen? Is it on the transient? Is it on the eternal? Is it on the light momentary affliction? Is it on the weight of glory? Is it on the suffering or is it on the inner transformation that God is doing in our lives to prepare us for glory? We can focus on, we have to focus on one or the other. Our nature tends to focus on what we see right in front of our faces, the outer person. We're going to focus on the transient, but it's transient. It's here for a time and it goes away. What Paul is calling us back to is focus on what's not transient. Focus on the eternal. That's what sticks around when everything else leaves. Our suffering, which is very real but temporary, is preparing a glory for us, provided we focus on what is seen, on what is unseen, not on what is seen. Where is our focus going to be in our suffering? All right, so the best I've got in trying to pull together the argument that Paul is using in verses 8 through, through 18 Because we're jars of clay, we're susceptible to suffering. As we share the gospel of Christ, we'll continue suffering in this world and being sustained by God. Our suffering and deliverance puts on display the suffering and victory that Christ experienced through his resurrection, through his crucifixion and resurrection. As followers of Christ, we're called to suffer on behalf of others, to give them the opportunity to hear the gospel and respond to God with grateful hearts, bringing him all the glory. And in all our suffering, We keep an eternal perspective and do not lose heart. Understanding that our suffering is actually preparing us for an eternity spent with God on the other side of death and affliction. Let's pray. Father, the way you work does not line up with the way that we would work. Um, Your thoughts are indeed higher than our thoughts. Your ways are indeed higher than our ways. Father, this is not how we would have designed it. Father, surely we would have put something in there about the comfort of your people, about ease, about rest as we minister. 
Father, what you present us with is a life of hardships, a life of suffering, that that is the norm. Father, we're reminded when Peter tells his people, don't be surprised when you go through all the hardships. So, Father, we submit to your ways. We submit to how you work and not how we would work. Father, show us in our very real, very present suffering how to embrace it. Father, how to see it as it truly is. How to not downplay it, Father, but how to see what you're doing beyond it. Father, I need that in my own life. Father, as I'm going through stuff, I need you to help me see beyond I need you to help me get everything in perspective to see how you're at work, to see what you're doing for your glory. Father, remind me of this over and over again. Let us go back to this as we think about ministering to those outside the walls of the church. And let us handle suffering in such a way that they see the death and resurrection of Christ in us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, please. We'll take just a few minutes and have a Lord's Supper time that seems fitting considering where we've been these last couple of Sundays looking at treasure in jars of clay. I'm going to give sort of a uh, bird's eye view context preparation um, for one little chapter we're going to read in 2 Samuel about a dude named Mephibosheth. That's uh, who I'd like for us to consider this morning as we take the supper. The nation of Israel wanted to be like their neighbors and wanted a king. And God granted them that request eventually and gave them King Saul. Things didn't go well with Saul. Um, over the course of time, his uh, reign rule was stripped from him. He died in battle along with his son named Jonathan. Jonathan's closest friend was David the one who was to be anointed as king of Israel and Judah. Uh, 1 Samuel ends with chapter 31, the death of Saul and Jonathan. They die in battle. And then 2 Samuel picks up with David's, um, he laments over Saul's death, Jonathan's death. He's anointed king of Judah in chapter 2. Uh, on Later in chapter 5, he's anointed king of Israel. Uh, he does what kings do. He brings the ark back to Jerusalem uh, over a course of time. It's sort of a dramatic story there. Uh, he gets in trouble with his wife for dancing in front of it, scantily clad. Uh, God makes a covenant with David. David fights some battles, a number of battles. Chapter 8 sort of gives the story there of all of his victories. And then in chapter 9, he sort of catches his breath. Just kind of have a view of King David having done all that he's done to this point, having been through all that he's been through, having mourned over his closest friend, Jonathan. He's fought these battles. He's sitting down for a few minutes and says, I think I would like to bless somebody. That's where chapter 9 picks up. And David said, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Remember, that's his closest friend. Who died in battle. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, I am your servant. 
In other words, yes. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan, and he's crippled in his feet. Let me just tell you briefly how this happened. A few chapters earlier, chapter 4, it says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He's five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, the reason they're fleeing is because what would happen when a new regime or new ruler came in, if he's from a different family, is everybody from the old family is killed off. We have little versions of that now, like when there's a new governor, all these people that were appointed by the previous governor, what, guess what happens to them? They get canned. I mean, they don't get killed, but this is an older version of that where people are replaced, um, and in this place, in this instance, killed. The nurse knew that, so she gathers up little five-year-old Mephibosheth, drops him on his head, I guess, whatever, drops him somewhere where his spine or something's damaged to where homeboy can't walk. He's a cripple who really, according to the way things typically operate, should be dead. Okay. So the king sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, and he fell on his face and paid homage. Now, he's probably expecting to die here any minute. He deserves it according to the way things typically work. And David said to him, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. It's marvel enough that he didn't have him killed but it's scandal that he invites him to his table. You're going to eat at my table like you're my son. And he paid homage and said, Mephibosheth gets it, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? If you were to ask Mephibosheth, hey, are you clay? He would say, yes, sir, complete with cracks complete with clay and frail and feeble, functionally crippled feet. And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to his house I've given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring him or bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth Your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And in case we've forgotten, 
Now he was lame in both of his feet. I'm going to come back to this story. Once we've passed out the elements, I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit different this morning, is keep the elements, both of them, and we'll take them together. So we'll pass out our bread and then the cup, but don't take them yet. And then I'm going to bring us back to this story as we take our elements this morning. Okay, let me take you back to the story. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was you. Think of this story, these narratives, they unfold for us what the real story is. And this narrative is so beautiful because it's so contained, so perfectly illustrated. This fall, imagine being our fall, Genesis chapter 3, where we participated in the sin of Adam and Eve, whether you like it or not. You may not like the notion of corporate sin, but there is a reality of corporate sin. Although I don't personally need Adam to be guilty, maybe you do. We all sinned in the fall. We've all fallen. And in fact, our Bibles tell us that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Nobody rates to eat with the king. We rate what should have happened to Mephibosheth. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This passage where it says, this cool passage gives me goosebumps. Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Read that in terms of the gospel. Is there anyone left that I may show him kindness for Christ's sake? Is there anybody that's united to Christ by faith that I may show kindness to because of what Christ did? That's the good news of the gospel. And if there is, if someone's united to him by faith, then come and eat at this spread. Come eat at the table of the King of kings and Lord of lords. I want you to take this supper this morning thinking of it, just keeping a few things in perspective, that we are a gathering of a bunch of crippled Mephibosheths. I don't want to be part of a church that where people think they got it all together, where they're shiny pennies. The gathering of the shiny is not a church I want to be part of. I also don't want to be part of a church that's celebrating sin either. I want to be part of a church that has a real keen eye for the scandal that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, yet we're invited to a table that we don't deserve. And then may we sin all the more, may it never be. (laughs) But that we pursue holiness in light of what's been done for us, not to earn the table, but in light of the table. Keep those things in view, those tensions in view, as we sit at this table that we don't deserve. As we sit at this table because of God is showing favor for the sake of those who are united by faith to his son. Let's take and eat and drink in light of those things.
God, I pray that you will guard this people as I believe that you have, that you would guard us forevermore from being a gathering of the shiny. God, I pray that we can be stirred up by way of reminder, that our minds can be renewed to the ultimate reality that we don't rate this table that we gather at each week, table of the fellowship of the word, fellowship in song and worship, and fellowship in supper. Lord, I pray what that will make for is a bunch of people who are low and humble and forgiving and long-suffering with one another as we're a bunch of cripples looking around the table at each other not expecting too much of each other, but being honest and genuine and real as we really shouldn't expect too much of ourselves in light of your perfection and your holiness. Lord, I pray that we can have an honest view of ourselves and others that's enlightened by richer and truer and more robust view of who you are of what holiness looks like and what you actually achieve for us in Christ. And Lord, I pray the result of that will be a bunch of people who are pursuing holiness for your glory and for your namesake. And a bunch of people who have a lot of grace and forgiveness with each other. Gobs of it. And Lord, I pray that that will make for a people who are attractive to those who don't know you who see that there's this otherworldly fellowship and this otherworldly people who have otherworldly grace with one another, who are satisfied with you, not just checking the block with you, but who are satisfied with you, enjoying you. Lord, I'm thankful for these weekly reminders of what you've done for us in the cross. And this morning, I pray that as we continue in song and continue in giving and continue as we leave this building and go about our day and the rest of this week, that we'll be fueled by an accurate view of who we are and who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. We marvel at that right now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. A couple of brief announcements, and then y'all will be dismissed. The first thing is uh, just a reminder that we still need um, uh, workers for Wednesday nights for our ever-growing, flourishing, ridiculously expanding children's ministry. And so if y'all could uh, pray through that and see not if but where you need to serve in regards to that. Uh, You saw our video last week of our children and their sad faces reminding you that they need love from you guys Uh, The other thing is April 29th, we're going to have our annual meeting. You may be wondering, that's two months away. This is Crosspoint. Why are you talking about it? Um, It's because it's really important. And so uh, we're wanting you to put that on your calendars, make it a priority, because this is the one time a year where we gather, we talk through a lot of kind of in-house family details. So that's April 29th is our annual meeting. Also, March 25th, is our, mem- our membership renewal. You, you may be, um, some of y'all may be familiar, may not, but we have an annual membership renewal here. It's not like a country club l- renewal or anything like that. What this is, is, is it's us taking very seriously the call to be members of one another as we are members of Christ. And so each year we renew that and we celebrate together and we challenge and encourage each other. And that will be March 25th. This week, you'll be receiving forms in the mail, um, 
explaining our membership renewal, what it is, what it isn't, and what that needs to look like. If you're not currently a member and you're interested in becoming a member, talk to one of the staff people, one of the pastors, one of the deacons, your small group shepherd, and we can get you moving in the right direction on that. Finally, today at 5.30, we'll be meeting back up here to send the Hucks. Um, they've been stateside for a while, and we want to love on them, encourage them, and eat a meal with them. And so we'll actually be, we'll have some tables set up in here. Um, through your small groups, you've been told what to bring. If you don't know what to bring, just bring something. And uh, we'll have chicken, and we'll have some tables set up in here. And then if it's nice outside and not too cool, we'll uh, have some spots out there to, to sit and gather and eat and have fellowship. Let's stand. That's at 530, 530 today. Y'all stand, I'll pray, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we're thankful for our time this morning. Uh, indeed, your ways are higher than our ways, and uh, you are always doing more than we can know or understand, and even when we know that you are doing something, we don't always understand the intricate details that lie therein. So we humble ourselves before you. We thank you for this time today. Lord, my prayer is that you would allow us to go and not only be hearers of the word, but doers also, and so that we could walk in the word for your glory. Allow us to respond obediently and be willing to uh, walk in whatever uh, direction and through whatever uh, you would lead us. Help us to keep in step with the Spirit. We love you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great day.